0: on in our series on the Holy Spirit, and we're really, um, we're going to begin, um, I'm going to close the series out, uh, Life, uh, Church and the Life of the Spirit, with, um, with Romans 8, which is this incredible, magnificent chapter a Mount Everest, if you will, in the Scriptures, um, which deals with the Holy Spirit. And so we'll, we'll um, begin the first and probably th- uh, three or four sermons on, on Romans, Romans 8. And our, our text this morning we'll be looking at is the first 11 verses of Romans 8. So hear God's word to us. Therefore, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus But according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. For the law indeed it can, I'm sorry, Of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Amen. The gospel is God's restoration plan for a broken creation. As a restoration project, it is cosmic in its scope because the corruption of creation is from top to bottom. However, the focal point of the gospel salvation work in this phase of restoration is focused upon human beings, because It is human beings, us, that stand at the spiritual center of the created order. And it was human beings, the human race, that originally plunged the whole creation into corruption and bondage because of our sin. But someday, creation will, but someday, it will be through a human being, one that is perfect in righteousness and justice by which creation will be liberated from its corruption and bondage and completely restored to its original glory, for which God originally destined it. So it was human beings that plunge creation into uh, corruption and bondage, but it will be a human being who redeems creation from its bondage. This is really um, Romans 8 in a nutshell. If you keep reading on to the end of the chapter, this is the idea. We underestimate how central human beings are to God's plan from the very beginning, and how central human beings are to the end as well. We've already read and I've prayed a good bit around Psalm 8, and I think it captures the weight and the responsibility of what it means to be those created in the image of God. Psalm 8, you have made him human beings, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands, and you have put all things, this is an incredible statement, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This psalm very much um, evokes the image of, or the, the story of Genesis 1 and 2 of how God originally created human beings. To be, Adam and Eve were like a king and a queen. They were like a king and a queen. They were the most glorious creatures amongst a world and universe of glorious creatures. They were exalted because they were image bearers. Unlike the rest of creatures, they did not have the image of God, but human beings bear the image of God. We reflect the very character of God, and God's intent from the beginning was for human beings made in his image to rule the world in such a way that creation comes into its full flourishing, in its fullness, which creates more glory and majesty for God. Oftentimes, I just want to note this, um, we often think, well, God created this world perfect, and then we came in and screwed it up, and then salvation is just returning to its original perfection. And that's true, but actually, God creates a perfect world, but the world hadn't actually reached its full potential or glory or perfection that God intended it to be. Human beings were meant to to draw that out to its fuller glory. But when the first human beings, the first couple, turned away from God in rebellion, they lost their original glory. They lost the original honor with which God had endowed them. The image of God in them became distorted and defaced, kind of like a a beautiful painting that somebody, you know, spray paints over. The gifts of justice and righteousness, which they possessed in full, were lost. And corruption of their sins swept through all of creation like an uncontainable virus. And this invisible virus of sin was unstoppable, and it introduced into the created order death and decay. And not only was the creation itself subjected to bondage, animate and inanimate objects, the bondage of death, but sin literally held a death grip on human nature. And the grip was so strong that there was no escape in it, however much we tried. It it divided us against ourselves, it divides us against ourselves, it enslaves us, it sabotages all of our best efforts at turning to God in righteousness. So the end of the Gospel is, is really the full restoration of the image of God in us. It's the full restoration. That's what the goal of the Gospel is, full restoration. Um, the word that is used in later in chapter 8 of Romans to describe this is glorification. That's what the end of salvation is, is glorification. It is the full and complete restoration of the image of God in us when we, again, shine with glory and honor. But the restoration begins, begins with justification. It begins with the setting right of our relationship with God with our our broken relationship with God which was lost. Justification means that the offense of sin against God is removed through forgiveness such that that the law that we broke is no longer held against us, that that we can be in relationship with God. That the hostility that marked that relationship is overcome through Jesus' atoning death and all of this becomes ours through believing faith and, and it is an instantaneous reality. This is a thing about justification. To be justified is to be declared righteous and it is uh, marked with believing faith and it's instantaneous. It's instantaneous. But we all know that to be justified, to be right with God, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm alright in a sense. That I'm fully finished. I still have a lot of unholiness and sin within me. God's plan is for complete restoration of the image of God. And after justification comes this process, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this word, sanctification. And sanctification is about being made holy. That's what sanctification means. It's the process, sanctification is the process by which the ruined and defaced image of God in us is repaired, restored. It's a restoration project. It is to become truly holy. To become holy means nothing less than to become fully and truly a human being. There, you know, we have this image of the word holiness, and it's actually reflected in our, our uh, reflection, um, where we think of holiness as somehow less than human, somehow anti-human, where it's whole, there's holiness and there's wholeness. Well, holiness is wholeness. To be holy is to be fully human. To be holy is to be fully alive. It's to be who God created you to be, perfect as a creature. We tend to think of, of holiness as somehow de- a denial of our humanity. Holiness is just a denial of your false self. <laughs> holiness is the denial of your false self and the, fu- and the flesh, which actually destroys your true self. So that's important to understand. So the question here, and I know this is a lot of setup here, the question is how does this being made holy process work? And how is God involved in particular? In Romans 8, Paul introduces us to the spirit of holiness as the central character in the process of of sanctification. I think this is really important because there's a way that, that especially as Protestant Christians, we, um, we fall into this, this error in the way we think about being holy or, or being sanctified. We understand, yes, I'm justified by grace, through faith, it's all God, it's nothing I've done, right? God saves me, I can't save myself. But, but, but becoming holy and sanctification, well, that's on me. I become only as holy as I want, much effort as I want to put into it. And so we, we often don't think about how even sanctification itself, the process of being made holy, is actually God's continued work in us through the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why we tend to not have a very developed sense of how how the process of sanctification is actually God's work in us is because we don't have a very good understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, um, again, that's why I think what we're doing is so important to think about. And what Paul does here in Romans 8 is quite remarkable, um, and I'll try to be brief. But what he does is he, he gives us this, this image of the Holy Spirit, which combines two strands of, of work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He brings them together. The first strand is, is a strand um, we've, I've described as the Creator Spirit strand, and the second strand is the Temple Presence strand. Let me just compare and contrast them a little bit. Because what he does and how he pulls these together is very important for understanding what it means that the Spirit is the Spirit of Holiness. The Creator Spirit is the is the God it is the, the, the Holy Spirit that was from the beginning of creation that hovered over the waters and formed. It is the Spirit of God as creator that is engaged with every single one of us right now, upholding our very existence, giving us life. It's an understanding that the Creator Spirit is, is the source of of biological life itself, and is and it holds all things together and acts. It's the very power of God in creation, right? We had a whole sermon on this. That's the Creator Spirit. But this Creator Spirit, is it's an invisible work, it's an impersonal work, it's not one I can access, it's only one that I can be told about. <laughs> but then there's the temple presence work of the Spirit. And the temple presence of the Spirit is, is again, it's this you know, what you see throughout the Old Testament is the spirit, the, the personal, intimate presence of God that dwells only in holy places. On the top of Mount Sinai, and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple, or around the Ark of the Covenant. It is God's temple presence that is holy, and sometimes it's symbolized, uh, or uh, they're attached to so it's like described as a cloud, or as incense, but the, the reality of this temple presence is that nobody has access to it. You cannot access this without danger to your own life. Because this is God's holy presence. It's like going into the middle of a nuclear reactor without the right equipment on. And that's basically what happened when the, when the priest would go once a year into the holy of holies. He would basically put on what would be the equivalent of a nuclear reactor suit. So that less he died to be in the holy presence of God. And so what Paul does here, and what really begins with Jesus, he draws together these two strands of Creator Spirit and Temple Presence Spirit into one. And what we have is new creation spirit. And so what we have in the gift of the Holy Spirit is actually the power of God, the creative power of God, the, 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 the power that creates the heaven and the earth poured out upon us with the Temple Presence of God, the intimate presence of God, to make us holy. This is the spirit of new creation given to us because of Jesus Christ. So that's the sort of background a little bit. But under the Old Covenant, the path to holiness was very different. It's actually the one we're more familiar with. The path to holiness had to do with keeping the law. But Paul here introduces us to another way, the way of the Holy Spirit. Life in the Spirit is a path to holiness. But here, and, and here's where we'll spend the rest of our time, The Spirit of God does not um, displace the law of God. What the Spirit does is, the Spirit gives us a fundamentally new relationship to the law. Now, what Paul says here about the law is fairly complicated. Um, So we'll have to do a little bit of heavy lifting this morning. But it's worth the effort to follow the logic of Paul. And really, I I just want to concentrate on the first five verses of Romans 1 through 8. So, look at what Paul says, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So what Paul is doing here is he's given us a description of life that is an alternative to being under the law. That's a phrase for Paul in other places, being under the law. See, The way you were holy under the Old Covenant was by being under the law, by keeping the law. So let's start just with that first verse. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most wonderful statements in the whole Bible about the freedom of the Christian in Jesus Christ. It's a statement about the fact that we are no longer under the law It's a change, it means that we have a fundamentally changed relationship with God's law. In particular, what it means is this, is that we are no longer accountable for the penalty of our failures to keep God's law. We're no longer accountable to the penalty, to the punishment of failing to keep the law. The massive debt that every single one of us accrues over a lifetime, the debt of sin, which we could never pay off with a thousand lifetimes, all of which were sinless and perfect, we have been forgiven that debt. It's been absolved. And not only does the no condemnation apply to past debt that we've accrued, but any future debt that we may accrue because we are still in the flesh. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no penalty no punishment, no permanent shaming. That's the first aspect of what it means to not be under the law. But there's another part of not being under the law that's very important, that's assumed here. To not be under the law means that our relationship with God has been fundamentally altered from one that is performance-based to one, and I couldn't find a great phrase for this, but just stick with me, Paternally based. (laughs) Paternally, I mean fatherly based, right? Like, that no longer, in other words, our relationship with God is no matter a performance-based relationship like you would get between an employee and a boss, but it's one more like a father and a son or a father and a daughter. Those are completely different kinds of relationships. To be under the law means that we're always performing. To have the law as that which mediates us, our relationship with God, in a sense, is always to have a performance-based existence. It's always to to, to think to know that your, the pleasure of God and his favor towards you depends upon how well you keep the law or how well you do or how, how sincere you are in your Christian life. But to have a relationship with God that is based upon a, the you know, adoption, that we have been made sons and daughters of God is fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different because I know that a a good father does not make his relationship with his children to depend upon how well they keep the rules. Rules are important, for sure. You can't have a relationship without rules, but the relationship does not depend upon how how well the child keeps the rules. In fact, the father loves the child even when the child um, breaks the rules. And that's the difference, right? To be under the law is to have more of an employee, employer relationship with God, and that is our default. (laughs) And Paul says, no, no, no. Life in the spirit, as opposed to life under the law, represents a fundamentally different relationship with God God is your father. Now, just because we're no longer under the law doesn't mean that the law has been repealed or set aside, or all of a sudden becomes irrelevant to the Christian life. And this is where things get really tricky to understand what Paul means by law and what our relationship with it is. So just try to keep with me here, I'll. Paul tells us that the law is holy and it is good and it is righteous. The law reveals God's perfect character. The law tells us what it means to be truly human. As I said earlier, when Adam was originally created, Adam and Eve, they kept the law perfectly and effortlessly. They desired to keep the law because that was their nature. Obedience to the law, perfect obedience to the law is what it means to be fully glorified and restored as a human being. It is what it means to have a just society, the ones we we so desire. The law reveals to us everything we're supposed to be and to do, but here's the catch. Mere knowledge of the law does not translate into fulfilling the law. (laughs) This is so true about life. Information is not transformation. To know something about a reality does not actually change the way you engage reality. And it is especially true with the law because of the weakness of our flesh, or our false self, right? Because of our flesh, the effect of the law upon us is actually to make us worse, not better. The law works as like an accelerant in our flesh that increases sin and death. Now, the, you know, I don't have time to explain how this works and why, this is Romans chapter six and seven. So we're picking up with Paul's conclusion here. But, but for, Paul makes the argument that, listen, the, to live under the law, which is good and holy and just, actually has the opposite effect. It's almost like you, know, you tell a child a certain, of a certain age, um, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. And the, what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to do that, right? That's, that's how the law is works in us. It's like God tells us, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what you're not supposed to do. And there's something in our hearts that says, no, I want to do the opposite. But this puts us in a really um, complicated relationship with God's law, right? We're kind of in a bind here. So if the law is holy and good, To obey the law is actually what is in our best interest, but actually being under the law actually makes us more sinful, not less. What are we to do? What are we to do? That's that's where Romans eight begins with this question. What are we to do? (laughs) And Paul's answer here is the spirit. The spirit comes in and gives us a transformed relationship to God's law. So what is the relationship? How does the Spirit transform our relationship to God's law? How does the Spirit, in a sense, get us out of being under the law and yet still being able to fulfill the law? It's summed up, I think, in verse two, which really structures, I think, the whole chapter. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death and Paul here and this is where again Paul makes it somewhat hard for us he has reasons for doing this but he uses the word law here in a slightly different sense than he has been using it so the law of the spirit is not like a another law or an alternative law Um, the law of the spirit and or the law of sin and death um, it's it more captures the idea of alternative power regime alternative administration. You think about the differences between, say, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. That's kind of what Paul is doing in the way he uses the word law here. And administration is the, how something operates, how it engages all the rest of law, right, in a sense. And, and, and this is what Paul is saying. See, under the law of the Spirit, it orients you differently than the law of sin and death. See, simply to be under the law of sin and death, just to try to keep the works of the law, always means sin and death. So that's how he is using this, this, this imagery of law. To be under the law of the spirit is to belong to an alternative administration, if you will. Um, an alternative order, a different regime, um, a different kingdom that actually is liberation liberation from from the dominion of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life points us to a whole new way of being in relationship with God's law, which instead of creating more sin and death in us, actually creates in us freedom and life and righteousness. I know that's a lot to process, but let's look at, there's three aspects to kind of spell this out. Three different ways in which this, our relationship to God's law gets transformed. The first one is this. It has to do with, again, it goes back to this idea that that the law is not sort of set aside. It's not sort of like defunct or irrelevant. The first thing that changes our relationship to the law is the fact that Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. He has perfectly fulfilled it. The goal of the gospel has never been to repeal or to abrogate the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus says this. He says, I have not come uh, to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Again, look at what Paul says here in verse 3 and 5. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, right, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin. He took the penalty, in other words in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you see that? See, Jesus dies, Jesus came, not to set the law aside, but to fulfill it, and to then empower us to be able to meet its righteous requirement. God never sets the law aside, but sees that it is completely and perfectly fulfilled in the man, Jesus Christ. He assumes the penalty of our enormous debt and pays it completely, and totally, and not only that, in his life and in his humanity, he perfectly embodies the law. He is the perfect man. He is the perfectly loving man, perfectly righteous and just in every way. And to be in him is to have access to all of that reality. Something happens, and, and again, there's just such a rich text, I could spend a lot, many, many sermons on this, where Paul you know, draws to our mind the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that something fundamentally happens when Jesus comes, and he dies, and he ra- is risen from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. there is The fundamental fabric of the universe changes. There's something that is broken open that allows the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Creator Spirit and the Temple Spirit in one to come upon us. So that's the first piece, right? That, that we're, we're talking about something Jesus has completely fulfilled the law perfectly. But the second way that the Spirit uh, changes our relationship to the law is, is, is that he makes it something um, that works from the inside out see the spirit does something with god's law which the law in itself when it existed only as commandments written on on a, on a scroll could never do the spirit writes the law upon our own hearts he is able to produce obedience within us from the inside out see the problem with with uh, being under the law was that it was an outside-in approach, right? You have the law out there, and I'm trying to do it, and I'm trying to conform myself to it. But what changes under the new covenant, what changes in Jesus Christ is the Spirit is given to us. And these are, these are prophecies in the Old Testament that look towards us in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah says, I will put my law, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts and they will be, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Imagine, this: like to have God's spirit write his law on your heart means that he gives you desire to do it. (laughs) He gives you the power to do it. That's our problem. We know what the law is, we just lack the ability to do it, the desire to do it. In Ezekiel, it says something very similar. And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, the heart that is hardened, the heart that doesn't desire God, and give them a heart of flesh. And they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And again, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. See, the law told us what to do, but it couldn't give us the ability and the power to do what it was asking us to do that's so important to understand the law tells us what to do tells us but it does not have the power to help us do what it tells us to do but the law of the spirit of life means that the holy spirit brings all the power of new creation into our hearts to be able to walk according to the spirit to set our minds on the things of the spirit and empowers us for obedience and does the therapy that I was talking about last week on the false self. I mean, that's what, that's what the Spirit is doing. All. I mean, He is invisibly, mi- mysteriously working um, new life in us, creating new people, giving us therapy from our false self, from which springs true obedience and desire for God. So, so the, just to recap, coming to a close here, the Spirit transforms our relationship with the law, fundamentally, by first, but, you know, <clears throat> well actually the gift of the Spirit comes because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, right? The flaw has been fulfilled perfectly, but then what the Spirit does is able to take the law from something that was outside of us and brings it into us, into our hearts. And the, but the third piece is this, the final way the Spirit transforms our relationship with the law is by uniting us with the person who perfectly kept the law. Now, I, I, sometimes when I preach, I have like, maybe I should use this illustration, I'm not sure. I just put a question mark. Let me try to illustrate something. It's a little bit silly, but... Union with Jesus Christ is the foundation of Christian growth and transformation. And what's so key here is that the Holy Spirit Um, unites us with the one person who kept it perfectly. Here's the silly illustration. Imagine like you wanted to become an Olympic swimmer. You wanted to swim like Michael Phelps. And he's like closest to the most perfect swimmer there's been, right? Now, you you know, imagine that somehow, like the end of life was simply to be able to swim like Phelps swam. (laughs) And, you know, what would happen is imagine that 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 somehow you were able to be connected with all of the abilities and skills that Michael Phelps had, and you were able to grow into becoming a better swimmer, right? Just over time, there was the spirit of Michael Phelps dwelt in you, right? And he just you know just getting stronger and faster. I mean, there, there's I know this is silly, right? It's a little bit silly, but I want you to try to. This is what's going on you are united with jesus christ who is the most perfect human being there ever was he has given you his spirit and so what you have access to in jesus christ is a new power source what you have access to is a new identity a new purpose in your life a new place in the world you are united to a whole new reality and sanctification is simply beginning to grow more and more and more into that which is jesus christ And glorification is simply the completion of that process where he makes you full. And again, I want to draw our attention back to the Holy Spirit because the Spirit that indwelt Jesus Christ is the same Spirit that that raised him from the dead is the same Spirit that indwells us. It's the same Spirit that is bringing our our sort of mortal flesh and death to life. And again, remember in Genesis 1 where we have this picture of the Creator Spirit, where God forms the man from the dust of the ground, and and then he bends down and he blows into him the spirit of life, the ruach, the breath. Here you have the Holy Spirit animating the first human being biologically. And what we have with the second Adam is the Holy Spirit went into the depths of the graves where Jesus Christ lay in his mortal body dead, and the Holy Spirit again breathes into him the breath of life, and he is raised from the dead. And that same spirit now comes from Jesus Christ as the spirit giver. And he is growing the breath of life, of new creation into our mortal bodies and bringing us alive. Friends, this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is the spirit of holiness that God is using to restore us to full glory. Let's pray. Father, um, your word is glorious and its truths are are, um, reached to the skies. They are so beyond us. Sometimes they are hard for us to understand. Help us, Lord, to see how magnificent your salvation is and how ambitious um, that project is and how much more you desire from us than perhaps we realize but that, Lord, this is not a burden that we have to realize to get ourselves to become like spiritual Olympians, but it is something through the power of your Spirit that you affect through your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be in close relationship with the Holy Spirit, to walk in the Spirit and give us strength in whatever area of our life that faces us with death and decay May you breathe the spirit of life into that and help us to live obediently and live in the power of new creation. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.